Have you ever not checked your phone for a little bit and then look down at your phone and you see 10 missed calls from the same person? Anybody? You look down at, maybe not 10, maybe it's six missed calls, maybe it's four missed calls, it's more than one missed call, or you flip out your phone and you look down and it's like three missed calls and 30 messages from the same person. What's going through your mind when you look at your phone and you see that sort of thing? What's your reaction? Bruh. Bruh. Uh, yeah, there you go. It's like, what happened? What happened? Because I don't know if you have this, or I know some families have this set up where it's like, okay, if I call once, maybe it's just, okay, I was just trying to get a hold of you. If I call you a second time, it's like, I re- like there's something I really need to tell you. And I know some people have that. It's like, oh, if I'm at work and Becca calls me once, it's like, okay, maybe if I'm busy, won't answer. But if it's twice, oh man, something's gone wrong. Now, if there's like 10 calls, it's like, wow, like, did our house just burn down? Did, you know, what happened? Did someone go to the hospital? Like, you know, you're chop your arm off somehow. It's like, what happened if there's that many really trying to get a hold of you with 10 messages, 10 missed calls? This is important is what they're saying, trying to get a hold of you. A similar thing happened to us. Well, this emphasis of, hey, something urgent, something important is taking place is what we find here in James chapter four. In these four verses that we're gonna look at, guess what? There are 10 commands given in just these four verses. 10 commands. Hey, do this. James writing to the other believers, this is what you need to do. Up until this point in this chapter, in James chapter 4, guess how many commands were given so far? They call them um, second person imperative commands. Zero. So James 4, 1 to 6, zero commands given. And then all of a sudden, he gets to this point in verses 7 to 10. Hey, 10 commands, 10 important things for you to know. What's the important thing for us to know? Well, let's look at it in James chapter 4, verse 7. What is he trying to say? Let's think a little bit. Verse 6, the end of what we covered last week, it said, He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And remember, last week we established we shouldn't be prideful people thinking we're all good on our own, but say, hey, we should humble ourselves before the Lord, see our need for forgiveness, and Give control over to God. He builds upon that idea, idea of humility, submission. Verse 7 says that. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Saying, hey, you want to be proud and do your own thing? Well, don't do that, verse 6 said, because guess what? God's going to humble those who exalt themselves, those who are proud. But rather, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit. That's the idea of put yourself under the authority of that person. So put yourself under the authority of God. Submit yourself. The same word is used in Titus 2.9 where it says, Slaves, obey your masters. So think of that relationship between a master, the one in charge, and a slave. Does a slave get to say, hey, I'm going to go do whatever I want? The master's like, no, I told you to do this, and you're going to be doing that. Saying In that same attitude, that same mindset, you willingly submit yourself to God. Say, I'm not going to be prideful and do my own thing. Submit myself to God. Keeps going. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You kind of see this opposite reaction to God and the devil. It's not resist God, say no to God, and submit to the devil, fall after the No, resist, say no to the desires that Satan would have you do. Do your own thing. Say, I'm good without God. I can live my life however I want. No, resist the devil. Guess what? 
He'll flee from you. You can say no to that temptation. Submit yourself to God. Verse 8, similar idea of submit, draw near to God. Saying, hey, because you are in your sin, you're distanced from God. Your sin, um, Isaiah speaks of, creates a separation between you and God. So draw near to him. How, how do you do that? Repent, submit yourself to God. Guess what? You draw near to God, what? He will draw near to you. Well, how do I do that? It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The problem with us is we're sinful. We're double-minded. This idea of, oh, we sometimes want to do what God wants, and other times we want to do what this world wants. It's saying, hey, rather than being uh, double-minded or almost two-souled is the idea of, oh, trying to be in with the world and in with God. We've talked about that before. Rather than doing that, no, cleanse your hands and purify your heart. There needs to be this change that takes place internally and also externally in your life. Verse 9, in your response to your sins, you sinners, and purifying your hearts, this is what you should do. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Say, hey, in response to seeing your own sin, you know what you should do? Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Say, hey, before, maybe you're doing the wrong thing and you're like, ah, who cares? Maybe you're being disrespectful and laughing and thinking it's no big deal. No, there should be this change that takes place where you're not okay with wrongdoing, but rather there's mourning and gloom because of our sin. Verse 10, it kind of restates the idea in verse 7 where it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and guess what? He will exalt you. There's a good thing that comes when we don't say, hey, I'm good on my own. I'm, uh, there's pride within me that I want to exalt myself and live how I want to live. No, guess what? Those who exalt themselves, verse 6 said, is going to be humbled. But guess what? The good part is if we willingly humble ourselves before God and say, God's the one in charge. I see my sin for what it is. I'm turning from it. I'm submitting to him as in charge of my life. Guess what? We'll be exalted not just looking necessarily at this life, but the next life. There's going to be great glory and good that comes from us humbling ourselves before the Lord. And all these 10 commands packed in these four verses are all towards the directive of, hey, submit yourself, humble yourself. You see your sin, turn from your sin. Be made right with God, the idea of reconciliation. You're enemies of God. How can you be near to him? How can you draw near to God? Well, it's by submitting yourselves, by saying, God's the one in charge. And we see this passage, and we see, oh, this is a very applicable text for someone who's an unbeliever, right? For a, a non-Christian. Non-Christian living their own life, doing their own thing. Their uh, unbeliever is an enemy of God. And we'd say, oh, man, I've, I look at this passage for um, the unbeliever. What do they need to do? They need to repent of their sins, give their life over to Christ, say, he's the one in charge. But maybe we say, well, this doesn't really seem to be applicable for, for Christians. I want you to see, man, whether you are an unbeliever or a believer in the room, this is applicable for you. Think, for the believer, the command for you is also when you sin, because you're going to sin as a believer also, you should respond to that sin with repentance because you are made right with God. Once you repent of your sin, become right with God. It doesn't mean, oh, I don't ever need to repent again. 
No, there should be this lifestyle of repentance, not that you're being saved over and over again, but because that sin is a believer, man, that, that almost throws a wrench in that relationship with God. Not that you're no longer right with him, but man, there's, you did something that you weren't supposed to, and you feel bad about that, so you want to respond by saying, hey, I'm sorry for what I did. It's like this. Think of your parents. Your parents. Now imagine Holly to sinned against her mom, sinned against her dad. Sorry to, 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 to uh, okay, Paxton. Uh, 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 just use Holly since that was the first person I saw when I was going into this illustration. Holly sins against, sins against her parents, does something, doesn't feed her dogs like she was told to. Oh, disobeys, disrespectful. Um, so, some sort of rebellion against her parents. Should she go to her parents and ask for forgiveness? Repent of that sin to, to her parents. Hey, I'm sorry that I didn't do what you commanded. I'm sorry that I was disrespectful. Yes or no? Yes. Okay, there we go. Interaction, yeah. Yeah, she should do that. Well, why should she do that? Is she afraid that, oh, if I don't ask for forgiveness, mom and dad are going to say, kicked out of the family. Holly, pack your bags. If you don't confess or sin, guess what? Out of the family, go live somewhere else. Good luck out there. Like, no. I don't think that, I'm not fearful if I do something wrong to my parents that they're going to say, oh, kicked out of my family. Why? No, because you're already part of the family. But because you did a sin against your mom or against your dad, you sinned against your parents, man, that kind of strains that relationship a little because you did something that you weren't supposed to. And because it's like, that's my parents. I care about them. I love them. You know what I want to do? I want to repent, acknowledge my sin, and confess it before the Lord. You see how that principle right there takes this passage and applies it for the Christian. That when you sin as a believer, your response to sin should be similar to that of the unbeliever, where the unbeliever is repenting of the totality of their lifestyle of sin and saying, my life is God's. Well, now that you're right with God, it's not a repenting of the totality of your sins because you've already done that, but that strain in that relationship when you are disrespectful or you lie, you say, man, I don't like that I sinned against God. That's not good for this relationship, so I want to repent of it daily. One thing that is a principle in this passage found in verse 9 that is applicable to both is the believer and the unbeliever, uh, the, yeah, believer and the unbeliever's response to sin. Both the believer and the unbeliever, when they sin, should respond with how verse 9 says. With, I put it this way, point number one, be sad about your sin. There should be a sadness over sin that a unbeliever should have, and also when a believer sins, a believer should also be sad about sin. Are you someone who is sad when sin takes place? Or do you overlook it? Kind of okay with it? Don't see it as that big a deal. Is anybody like really spicy food? Anybody? Anybody? It's like, man, give me, give me like I eat it all the time, okay? A couple, couple people out there. Now, who's like on the opposite side of the spectrum, kind of like me, where it's like, man, uh, I get, I don't know, the spicy deluxe at Chick-fil-A, and man, that, that, that's got a kick to it. Woo! Uh, who, who's right up there with, okay. Um, 
All right, Bryce. He's like, a spicy can't handle it. So, so imagine I said, Bryce, okay, doesn't really like spicy food. You know what I'm going to give you to eat? A ghost pepper. It's like, all right, Bryce, come on up, and, you know, here's the ghost pepper to eat. What is his response going to be to that ghost pepper? It's going to be like, like, give me the, like, we got to have water, milk, milkshake, bread, I guess, helps, whatever, all those things. I was like, man, I'm going to eat that, and guess what? He's going to be, like, running around the room because it's just like, oh, the spice is just, like, making my mind go wild. And it's like, wow, that's super spicy. Now, who said the spice is no big deal? Who said the spice is no big deal? Let's see. Well, Matthew's kind of like, eh, iffy, iffy. Uh, who's like, no, I want to know, like, the, the, like, oh, man, spice is no big deal to me, like, anything. Okay, I say in cozy, and cozy's confident. Um, now, imagine... And Cozy is, I eat spicy food all the time. You know, it goes to Buffalo Wild Wings. It's like, give me the hottest, hottest wings that you have. It's like, yeah, piece of cake. Now imagine I say, okay, now here, I'm going to give you the ghost pepper. I mean, I bet it's probably going to have some spice to it. But is his reaction going to look different than Bryce's reaction? Yes. Why? Well, Bryce never really has spicy food. And so that spicy ghost pepper is like, Ah, man, that's a really big deal. Whereas in Cozy, man, eats hot food all the time, eats spicy food all the time. It's just kind of another one of those spicy foods. And Cozy's become desensitized to that spice, so it doesn't seem like that big a deal. You see the point that I'm trying to make with that in sin? We can be surrounded by so much sin uh, in a daily basis because we're sinners and we do sinful things. We live in a sinful world where people around us sin all the time. We look at the news and there's more sin that takes place. And we kind of just say, well, I mean, just kind of how it is. Oh, yeah, it's just how it's supposed to be. When we need to realize just because that's how it is doesn't mean that's how it's supposed to be. Just because sin happens regularly doesn't mean that it's okay. Just because people do wrong things time and time again and we maybe sin over and over again doesn't mean, oh, well, that's fine. It's not a big deal. No, we should be sad when we see sin. I mean, before we focus on your sin, think about sin at large. Sin in the world in general. Maybe you watch the news or um, you probably don't watch the news. I never watched the news when I was here. But maybe you hear people talk about the news and Maybe when something really crazy happens in the world, something really bad, then you hear about it. What is your response when you hear about that, that sinful thing that takes place in society? Whether it's a, a, a robbery or a, a murder or a terrorist attack or some sort of sinful thing that takes place out in the world, what is your response to that? Oh, well, it's just the news. I mean, it's just how the world, I mean... It's just how the news goes. Oh, it's same old, same old. Or maybe your response was, at least it wasn't me. Like, <laughs> stinks for them. Like, at least it wasn't me. Is that your response? Are you saddened by the atrocities and the evil that takes place across, across the globe? There should be a rightful mourning and sadness in the in our lives for when we see sin take place. doesn't mean that, oh man, you hear of a, of, um, a sinful thing on the news and you're just like, ah, 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 and it's like, oh, I can never watch the news because, oh, it just gets so like emotional. It's like, okay, maybe that's swinging too far on this side of the spectrum where it's like you get so distraught and so like 
wrecked by it that, oh man, don't tell me anything bad that took place because I can't handle it. It's like, okay, maybe that's too far on this side because we should expect and that people are sinful. And so there are sinful things that are going to take place, but we can't swing so far on the other side of the spectrum where it's like, oh, well, I mean, just because we know people are sinful and that's, supposed to, that's going to take place that, oh, it's not that big a deal. No, somewhere in the middle saying, yeah, I expect sinful people to sin, but I'm not okay with that. I don't brush it off as not a big deal. Do more in the evil that takes place in the world. Now let's zoom in a little bit. Sin that takes place maybe around you, family members, friends, maybe even in your small group. What is your response to that sin that takes place? Gossip, selfish arguments, unrighteous anger, sinful conflicts. Oh, I mean, my parents argue all the time, so oh, it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's just how it is. Oh, yeah, I mean, those kids are always having those sinful conversations at school, so whatever. You become desensitized to it. I mean, I, I went to public high school. You walk down every hallway, you're going to hear multiple cuss words said. And, I mean, no, it's the same in junior high. Don't get me wrong. It's like you walk past and because you hear it all the time, it's easy to become desensitized to it. And it's like, oh, I mean, that's just, just how it is. It's like, no, that's not right. That's not how God designed it. That's not how God desires us to act. Every sin is ultimately against God. Oh, I, I go to Christian school. I go to private school. So, you know, nothing bad happens there. Ha, <laughs> I guess that's all I say. I went to a private school, first to eighth grade. Guess what? The simple conversations that would here take place in high school, oftentimes the same conversations would take place at private middle school. I look back at my graduating class in eighth grade, guess what? I can look back pretty confidently, say at that time, zero Christians, including myself. Don't think, oh, I go to homeschool, I go to private school, there's no wrong things. No, sinful things all around. In the narrow, people sin against each other. What is our response to it? When you say sadness is a proper response to that. How about sin in your life? Let's keep, zoom in. Maybe look at the murder and the robbery and you're like, wow, it's a really sad thing, but you're desensitized to your own anxiety because you're anxious all the time. And it's not a big deal. I'm just always anxious because, oh, whenever there's a test coming up, that's always how I respond. So it's just how it is. I always get angry. I'm just angry all the time. It's just, maybe you even say that. That's how God made me to be. Well, no. That's your sinful flesh acting out. You should be sad and mourn. The sin that you see in the world, when's the last time you did that? When's the last time you were sad over the sin that took place at your school? When's the last time you were sad and mourned over the sin in your own life? Sadness is a proper response. If you ever had a conversation, picture this, with a friend or a family member, someone that is close to you in life, you're talking with them, and somehow in the middle of that conversation, I don't know, maybe something that was said, you, you just get angry and you get frustrated in the middle of that conversation. And then all of a sudden, it just builds up inside of you. And it just keeps welling up and you get 
animated and you get angry and you just lash out with your words and you say something reckless that you weren't thinking um, or you didn't think about, just came off and it was wrong, it was sinful, and you said it to them and you storm away. Has anyone done that before? Maybe don't raise your hand, but just internally nod. It's like, I think most of us have probably done something like this. Now as you walk away and you cool down a little bit, do you ever feel sad, like the harm that you just caused to that person with what you said? I say if, you, if your answer to that is, is, is no, say that's a problem because you're, you're callous to your own sin. Don't see it as a big deal. But if your answer, and I think most of us would say, yeah, I, I can look back at that with a level head and say that I, was, I wasn't right. I feel sad, the harm that I just caused with, with my words. Say that's a, a good first step. Say you should be encouraged because that sadness over what you did shows at least some level of regret. And I wish I didn't do that. Should be saddened by it. When one sins against God, sadness and weeping is a proper response because it shows this sorrow over what you did. I mean, look at James 4.9. James 4.9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Wretched. See, they be miserable. Mourn, sad, grieve, weep. I looked up this phrase, or this word specifically in a Bible dictionary, and it said that this word weep is emphasizing the noise that often accompanies crying. So think of someone just crying deeply, and you've probably done this at some point before, and it's just like this whimpering almost. That's the idea there of, man, you're so broken over your sin that you're feeling almost miserable, and you're mourning, and you're crying. You're not laughing and saying, no big deal. No, your laughter is turned into mourning, and your joy is turned into gloom. See, because God is saddened by our sin. Ephesians 4.30 talks about how you can, if you're a believer, you can grieve the Holy Spirit by sinning. Holy Spirit's sad when, when you sin as a Christian. God's not pleased with sin, neither should we. Sadness is a proper response. And so easy for us to be so desensitized because we're, we, we sin so often, we interact with so many sinful people on every news, like just watch the news for five minutes and there's 45 things that sinful that took place in the world. But we should be ever more sensitive to sin. Be more aware of sin. Sorrowful over it. Are we aware of the sin in our own lives, in our own hearts? We should. One last verse. Shouldn't turn you to it, but let's turn to it. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 kind of coincides with the theme of last week. Remember we looked at Luke 18, and there was the tax collector and the Pharisee, you know, and the Pharisee was so self-righteous. Oh, thank you for, you know, thank you that I'm not like this sinful guy, and I'm so good. And he didn't realize his own sinfulness, and the tax collector realized his own sinfulness. Luke does this often in his Gospels in contrasting the greaters in society to the lessers in society. And he oftentimes makes this point of, oh, the people that you think would be the righteous individuals are often the self-righteous and they're not righteous altogether. But it's the people in society that are deemed all oh, lesser and the, the disgusting people in the world in the, the first centuries. Like, those are often the people who see their own sin and respond rightly. He makes this point in Luke chapter 5. 
Luke 5, drop down to verse 29. It says, And Levi made, a, made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So, a lot of tax collectors there eating a meal with Jesus, which I know I mentioned a little bit about tax collectors last week, but I mean, think of these guys as, as the criminals, like, of the world. Think of these like the mass murderers or the, the grand, um, grand thieves. Like, these, these were the, who the tax collectors were. I mean, their job was, you just think, oh, they were just collecting taxes. No, they could say, this is how much you owe. Um, I'm going to charge you actually 50% more than that. So what? I can pocket the other 50%. Like, these were the tax collectors in the day. It's like, wow, talk about a wealthy profession because of how crooked it was. And that was just commonplace. These tax collectors, wicked guys. Think about that. Oh, yeah, like, technically, you really owe the government 100 bucks. You know what I'm going to charge you? $1,000 so I can pocket the other 900. I mean, tax collectors were hated. And here's Jesus having a meal with all these sinful tax collectors. Doesn't seem right. Look at this, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. So the Pharisees, that's like the pastors of today. Think about that. The pastors looking at Jesus eating with all the criminals. It's like, what's up with that? He says, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? How does it make sense, Jesus? Aren't you opposed to sin and you're in favor of doing the right thing and here are the pastors of the day are actually wicked pastors but it's like oh why are you eating with these criminal guys verse 31 jesus answered them those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance hey those who are well those who think that they're righteous think that they're good guess what think there's no problem and they don't need, they don't see a need to repent. But it's the sinner who says, yeah, I see my sin for what it is. I need to repent. That's who Jesus went to. Those are the ones who were, who welcomed the message that they heard to say, yeah, I am a sinner. I do need to repent. That's why Matthew 5, 4, just write down that reference. It said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. Think about that. Happy are those who cry. <laughs> Could you imagine if that was like, point number one, write it down. Happy are the ones that cry. It's like, what? Is it like baby joy? Like, I had a baby, oh, I'm just crying. It's like, no, it's like heartfelt, like sorrow. Blessed, happy are those with deep sorrow. What? How can those be happy? Why? It's because they see their sin for what it is, and there's something they do about it. Point number two, respond to your sin with repentance. Repentance. Sadness should lead to something else. And that sadness, rightly, should lead to repentance. That's why in verse 7 you see, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You're under his authority. Resist the devil. Say no to sinful passions. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. When we see our sin, we shouldn't just be sad about it. No, that sadness should lead to repentance. Emotion is not the same as repentance. I want to make that extremely clear. Picture this. A teenager goes into a store to shoplift. Picture, I know this happens all the time with kids on e-bikes in town center. Um, Witness it. Um, kid goes into Ralph's, 
takes some stuff, doesn't pay for it, and walks out with it, that shoplifting. Now, picture the security guard is like right there, right as it walks out and pulls the kid to the side. It's like, gotcha. It's like, and then you see kid's face and kid realizes got caught and just starts crying. It's like, I'm so, like, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm crying. Like, oh man, my parents are going to be so upset. They're going to be so mad at me. Oh, like, I'm ne- I'll never do it again. And they're just like, oh wailing. Picture this, like crying like absurdly. It's, oh, I'm so, I'll never do this again. I promise, promise. It's like, man, if I was the security, I'd be like, whoa, like, wow, it was not the response I was expecting to get. It's like, wow, they seem really, really sad about this. Like, wow, okay. It seems like they learned their lesson. Seem like they're sorry. They're not going to do this again. Okay. All right. As a warning, I'll let you go. Now imagine the next week they come back same kid goes in the store, shoplifts, comes out, security guard, say, oh, you look familiar, pulls it aside, open your bag. Oh, stole stuff. Kid, oh, I'm so sorry. My parents are going to hate me. They're going to be so, I'll never do it again. Please, please, I'm so sorry. It's like, oh, wow. Imagine they, like, ramp it up even more. Like, hit another level. It's like, you're already thinking extreme. Like, think, like, double extreme. It's like, whoa. Okay, security guard, seems like you, you understood what you did was wrong. Seems like you said you'd never do it again. Man, see, seems like you're sorry for saying, okay, just a warning, let you go. You know where I'm going. Next week, come back, same kid, same store, gets caught again. Oh, I'm so, it's like, okay, I, I see what you're doing here. Yeah, you seemed to be sad, and you cried, and you said you'd never do it again, but, I mean, based off the pattern of your actions, it doesn't seem like you were genuine about it. See, sadness does not equal repentance. Sadness is good if it leads to repentance. Well, what does repentance look like? Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7. It's just a little right if you're still in the... In the uh, book of Luke, 2 Corinthians 7. If sadness is good, but emotion is equal to repentance, should I be sad or should I not be sad? Or how does this all come together? 2 Corinthians 7, look at verse 8. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve or sad with, with my letter, with what I'm writing to you, I do not regret it, though at first I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Say, hey, I wrote this letter to you, oftentimes exposing them for their sin, calling them out and said, ah, I made you sad because of what I wrote, showing you your sin. And at first I regretted it, but then I didn't because you were sad, but you were only sad for a little while. Verse nine, he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, or not just because you were sad, but because you were grieved into repenting. That sadness led to repentance. Keep reading. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, verse 10, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You feel sad over sin? Great. 
That's a good thing. Saying that is a good thing. But does it lead to repentance? The answer is no. That's a worldly grief. You feel sad about your sin. Maybe you even cry about your sin. But guess what? You look at the rest of your week and you're just doing that sin over and over again. You look at the rest of the month and it's just repetitious. That's a worldly grief. You were sad, you cried, but you didn't say, I'm resolved to turn from it. I'm done. Sadness is good if it leads to repentance. Well, what is true repentance? True repentance is that, that change. The word in Greek is meta. Um, I mean, think of like metamorphosis, like a change in form is, you know, the same. Meta is change. Um, metanoia, noia, knowledge or, or thinking. It's a change in mindset. It's a, a different response to that sin than you had before. First was, oh, I'm just giving into it. Now I've changed mind. I'm thinking about this sin differently. Guess what? I'm done with it. That change first happens internally. Repentance involves a change first in your internal desires. That's why you see James chapter 4 verse 7 at the end says, purify your hearts. There needs to be this internal change that takes place where you feel sorrow over sin. You repent, cry out to God, say, God, I'm done with my old lifestyle. Change my desires. Repentance is the first change in inner desires, but also repentance involves a change in outward behavior because of those inner desires. That's why James 4, 7, it says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Repentance is a change internally and externally. And the internal change, change of desires, lead to outward actions. I love that picture um, in equating repentance to one of like, cleanse your hands. I mean, picture you've got like, I don't know what you were doing, cooking or something or, you know, gardening maybe, uh, you know, and got your hands all muddy and and dirty. And now picture that washing your hands saying, man, that dirt I'm, I'm done with. Get it away from me. I love that picture of repenting. Like, done, gross, done with that sin. No longer, no. I'm resolved to do what God wants me to do. But as we think through repentance, and I was to ask you, say for instance, I was to ask you, what someone who lies, someone who lies, what does repentance look like for the liar? I think a lot of us would say, well, repentance looks like they're, they're going to say, I'm not going to lie anymore. I say, you're partially there. Ephesians chapter 4 is going to clarify what repentance looks like completely. Ephesians 4. If you're in 2 Corinthians, said go to the right. Just go, go a little bit more to the right. Just a few pages. Ephesians 4, drop down to verse 25. Ephesians 4, 25. first five words, therefore, having put away falsehood. So falsehood, that's the idea of lying or not being completely truthful. So you say, oh, what does repentance look like for the liar? Putting away falsehood. Okay, that person repented. Well, keeps going. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So what does repentance look like for someone who lies? It's saying, hey, I'm resolved. I'm not going to lie anymore, but rather I'm going to do what? Tell the truth. That's what full repentance looks like. Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal. If I say, hey, for a thief, 
What does repentance look like for a thief? Well, they're not going to steal anymore. Great, we're, we're halfway there. Let the thief no longer steal, but what? Rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. So what does repentance really look like for the thief? Not going to steal, but rather going to do what? Work hard. And even give out of the abundance of the, the hard work and what they've brought back to other people. So as you think through, man, if you're an unbeliever and you're like, man, I need to repent of all my sins. As you think through these sins that you're willing to give up, make sure you know what you're really signing up for. Say, man, I need to say, I'm done giving into these old sin boys, and now I'm, I'm devoted to do these right behaviors that God's called me to. And if you're a believer and you've already done that, but yet this sin is creeping into your life right now, maybe it's the, the uh, sin of anxiety, well, what does repentance of that sin look like? Say, hey, I'm not going to be anxious, not going to worry, but rather, what's the positive quality that I'm going to do instead? I'm going to trust God. So as you repent, say, I'm resolved to not do this thing, but rather, here's the godly thing that God will want me to do, and I'm resolved to do that. Verse 29, if you're still there, Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Oh, I just am reckless with my speech. Well, what does repentance look like for the person who doesn't care about their words? Well, I'm not going to say any corrupting things. Yeah, that's good, but also, can you use my words, such as is good for building up? Going to not say the bad thing, going to say rather good things. Satan wants you to just linger in your sin, stay in it. And when you sin, just, oh, just ignore it. Don't really deal with it. Just, you know, just try to forget it. But no, don't delay repentance. Do it right away. If you're an unbeliever, you need to repent of your entire life, give it over to God. If you're a Christian, you're not getting re-saved every time you repent because when you give your life over to God and say, God, forgive me of my sins, he's forgiving you of your past sins, but guess what? He's also forgiving you of your future sins that you've yet to commit. So when you repent, we call it maybe small r repentance here, big r repentance, repenting of my entire life, smaller repentance, repenting of a specific sin. Um, what you're doing is not becoming a Christian again, and you don't become a Christian every time you repent, but rather, you're thinking back to what Christ did on the cross for you and thinking back to his applic the application of that forgiveness on that sin. Because he has forgiven it, but you're thinking back to, man, God has forgiven me of this sin. I repent of it. Forgiven. Does that make sense? You're not saved again and again and again. No, saved at one point. But the application of that forgiveness is applied in the future even as you sin in the future. That's what you're pondering. Hopefully that clarified what does it look like? What is true repentance? What does that look like? I don't know. I've never repented before. Pray to God. Admit to God you're a sinner. Confess your sin to God. Say, God, I'm done with this old sin that I was once doing. Now I'm resolved to do what you want me to do. It's a prayer to him. Oh, is that even going to work? 1 John 1, 9. If you confess sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us 
Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you don't think, oh, it's going to work, you have a low view of God. Is God able to grant forgiveness? Yeah. Is God able to change your heart, change your desires? Yeah. Is God able to give you the ability to not give into this sin and do what he wants to? Yeah. But oftentimes it's like, oh, it works for other people, but it can't work for me because I've given into this sin for too long. You don't have a high enough view of God. You think your ability and your power to sin is greater than God's ability to change your heart and to forgive you. Think of the good that comes from repentance. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. Such a good thing when we think about eternity and the exaltation that's coming for the believer that, oh man, it seems so tough in this life. I've got to say no to sin. I've got to repent when I sin. I've got to discipline myself so I don't give in to sin. I've got to resist temptation. It all seems like, like, tough, boring, can't do anything fun, sucks. Christian life, awful. Think of the good that comes from being reconciled, being made right with God. Point number three, know the joy of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Well, it's like a big word, reconciliation. You know, reconciled, reconciled, maybe you've heard of that term before, reconciled. It's two things that were maybe enemies before or opposed before now being made right or being made peace with each other. So, Enemies, now what? Friends. Things anti each other, now guess what? They're brought together. You see, reconciliation is a good thing. I mean, I'm sure at some point you and your friends have had some beef, right? I mean, yeah, picture, you know, Mason and Jordan up here. They got, they got some beef between each other. It's like, oh man, you know, she uh, borrowed my, my jacket and didn't return it. Oh man, pshaw. Can't believe Jordan did that. How could she do that? Man, that was my favorite jacket. She said she just wanted to borrow it for a day at school and hasn't returned it. Oh, man, it's this conflict. Mason doesn't really talk to Jordan very much anymore because, oh, man, she took me the jacket, and now Jordan's like, oh, why is Mason not talking to me? So I guess I'm not going to talk to her. And there's just this this, pressure that is almost palpable between, I mean, hopefully there's not, or else it's really awkward that we're bringing this up right now in front of everybody. But it's like, just picture this. Um, there's not, you guys are good. Friends, right? Yeah, okay, good. Um, I figured. I wasn't going to expose something. If, yeah. Anyways, imagine there's that conflict, that beef. Um, and then one person goes up to the other and says, hey, Jordan, Jordan says, hey, I'm, I'm sorry for taking your jacket and, and not returning it. And Mason's like, oh, you know, and then all of a sudden this reconciliation takes place. And all of a sudden now they're back friends and that once conflict and awkwardness around each other is now gone. Is that a good thing? Yeah. I mean, you, I'm, a, I'm trusting at some point you've had a conflict with a friend. And now picture that moment if, I mean, hopefully it did. Sometimes maybe you're still in conflict right now. Uh, but if you've had that and that conflict's been resolved, picture that feeling of how good it is to now like be back bros, back together. It's like, yeah, like 
Let's go. That's a good thing. Be reconciled. So too, to be reconciled to God. Be made at peace with God. What is the joy of reconciliation? First is being peace with God. Romans 5.1 says that we've been justified by faith, by trusting in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Enemy, now at peace. That's especially true of the unbeliever because you are an enemy of God. But for the believer, okay, you're not an enemy of God when you sin against God. But it almost feels a little awkward because you did something that you know wasn't right. And, oh, by repenting, oh, man, conscience is cleared. I think another benefit and a joy of reconciliation is that guilt that you fear, feel over sin can be removed. Guilt over sin can be removed. You ever feel bad when you did that wrong thing, when you sin? That just pinging thing in your conscience that, oh, I shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have done that, and just over and over and over, and you just try to forget it, push it down, like, oh, whatever, just ignore it. It's like, no, it keeps ringing back up, ringing back up, ringing back up. I mean, people who commit like big crimes, oftentimes they like almost go a little crazy because it's just like that action that they did just keeps ringing in their mind and their conscience like, ah, I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. I mean, what do you do with that guilt? You have no idea. And a lot of workspace religions, it's like, well, what do I do with this guilt that I have on me? There's nowhere for me to put it. But if you acknowledge it before God, repent of it, that guilt can be removed because it's been forgiven if you repent. Unresolved guilt can cause so many problems, but you can have a clean conscience when you come before the Lord and acknowledge your sin to him. Also this, joy of reconciliation, peace with God, guilt can be removed. Third thing, exalted position. That's what James 4 verse 10 talks about. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Exalt you. Think of the glories of heaven. Small groups, you're going to read 1 Peter 1. You can see on the back of the worksheet, verses 3 to, 3 to 9. That big section kind of talks about this future inheritance that is stored up for the believer. That should be a motivator to repent. Man, one day I'm going to be perfect without sin. And I desire that. I'm longing for that. When I sin against God, oh, it's not good. Can't wait to when I'm made brand new, but right now I, I'm not. I'm going to repent. It should bring joy to the Christian when they say, I'm done with my sin. I'm going wholeheartedly after Christ. Believers should be characterized by a joy that can't be compared to, to the unbeliever. Even though there might be difficulty in you. I know a lot of you were in this main service sermon with Pastor Mike. It's like, oh, the persecution that comes with Christian. Oh, it's, it's tough. But a believer can have joy through it all because they can see the bigger picture. Even though, oh, right now it might seem tough. No, no, there's something good awaiting me. So I thought of that, an idea of joy and something in the future. Maybe think of winter camp. I don't know if, if you were like me, but when I heard word from the camp up there that we had to postpone camp. I was, I was sad. I'll be honest. <laughs> I was disappointed. I was bummed. I was like, oh, like really? Um, yeah, we are not gonna be able to do camp. I was, I was disappointed, but I was joyful knowing that guess what? Camp isn't, isn't 
not ever going to happen. It's going to happen in the future. And I was even able to be joyful as I heard from other people who was like, oh man, I'm actually thankful that camp is later because, oh man, I got sick or I'm sick right now. I mean, how many people are sick? It's like, oh, I got sick. Or from hearing from people, I wasn't able to go to camp, but now I'm able to go to camp. Um, hearing that, oh man, it was raining all day on Saturday, and wow, that would have been really tough being up there and trying to do some sort of outdoor game in the rain, and all these different things that I kept hearing from other people was like, like wow, initially I was really sad because it felt like, oh, this is a bad thing, but able to see the, the good and kind of God's plan through it all, that Sabrina and the leaders and the band not able to be sick, and you know, whether Lord willing going to be better, it's like, able to see the good in the end. I think the believer, because they know the bigger picture, even in the midst of if things oh, doesn't go our, our way, we can look back and say, well, I could see how God was using that for good. I can see the, the good because I know what the future holds for me as being someone who's right with God. So when you sin, come before him, humble yourself, repent, don't delay it, and resolve to submit yourself to God, to be made at peace with him. Let's pray. God, help us to humble ourselves before you. Not think we're good on our own, but to let you be the one in charge. Pray for the unbelievers, that they would give their entire life over to you. Say, I'm not living this life for me and for my fame and for my glory, but I want to live for Christ. Pray also for the believers in the room who are your children, but maybe there's a sin that has crept into their life. Help them to confess that sin immediately and rather resolve to do what you've called us to do. Help us to change us this coming week. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.